0: Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to Loving Liberty. So glad you could join us as we do every Tuesday. We love to check in with our friend Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. And Eric, uh, hopefully hopefully we find you uh, doing well today.
1: Yep, uh, I'm firing on all eight, uh, ready to go. Uh, even though it's raining outside, I've got a nice new Ford Expedition to, to deal with that, though.
0: Nice. Nice. I, I want to, of course, every week that we talk to you, I want to know what's the situation in Virginia? Because like a lot of people, I'm, I'm very concerned with the direction that lawmakers are taking in terms of trying to implement new draconian gun control laws. Uh, last I heard, yeah. it, it sounds like it's full steam ahead. They're, they're going to keep moving forward on this.
1: Well, they are moving forward on it, but they're using the uh, the familiar tactics of proposing something uh, that is extraordinarily alarming, in this case, a, a wholesale ban uh, on the sale, possession, uh, and so on of almost every type of firearm imaginable to, to get people all terrified, and then come out with something that's more, quote-unquote, reasonable. So my understanding is that bill that's under uh, consideration now in committee uh, that's going to be reported out, will simply prohibit the sale of so-called assault weapons and high-capacity magazines and other things in the state of Virginia. And uh, you'll still be permitted for now to own a rifle or a gun that has a, uh, a magazine that can, hand, that can take more than eight rounds, I think it is, eight or nine rounds, something wow. like that, uh, until, they, until, of course, they decide to do the next thing. So it's this incrementalism. It's, it's the doctrine of Fabian socialism. Well, and, ah, easy and, does it. And
0: as you know, the, the defiance that was was clear on January 20th in the rally at Richmond. Yeah. Um, I mean, look, it, it wasn't this wasn't like violent posturing. It was just simply, look, we are not going to comply. Yes. So lawmakers have been right. fairly warned. They know that this is going to spark a collision at some point. They don't seem to care.
1: Well, they don't. And they're being tactically savvy, I think, because it's much, much easier to pass a law forbidding sale. Because after all, if you're a retailer.
0: So if, you, if you're if you a stock, retailer, uh, these illegal,
1: yeah, you know, you're not going to stock something that's been rendered unlawful to stock, right?
0: Gotcha. Yeah.
1: So, so that's a whole lot easier than going door to door. They're only how many, you know, you figure in, in, in the state of Virginia, I don't know, there's just ballparking. What do you think? Maybe a thousand gun stores, probably, or even less in the entire store, places where you can go to buy a gun, as opposed to how many millions of people live in the state and how many of those have these soon to be illegal. Much easier to just cut off sale, you know. And then the next step, after that's been accepted, and that's the key thing here. If it's accepted, uh, then they'll they'll push for more six months from now, uh, a year from now, and so on. So I think it's very, very, very important to do everything possible to make sure um, that these bills, none of them pass. So I don't know how that's going to happen, given that the uh, the gun grabbers, uh, the rights takers, uh, have a supermajority in Virginia. They control.
0: Eric, we we had a little electronic stutter here. We're, we're having a yeah. little, little connectivity. You were saying they have a supermajority and they control, and then and then I lost you right there. What? Do they, oh, co- well, yeah,
1: they they have a supermajority, which means that they control both houses of the state legislature, and they also, of course, control the governor's office. So they're going to pass whatever they want to pass, and there's very little that the opposition can do. Uh, some people on the other side of the fence cross over Mitt Romney style, and I don't see that happening.
0: Wow. Well, it's it's very intense to see. I, I did see some video of a committee meeting last week in which uh, I think they were voting to, to move the bill out of committee and maybe on to the full assembly. Yes. And and when, when the vote was taken, there were people who expressed their disagreement in the audience, at which point uh, they cleared the room. I mean, threatened them with arrest That's right. if they didn't leave.
1: That's right. Yeah, well, what, that's what we're seeing all this other stuff, that uh, a, a, a minority of the state uh, in the urban areas in northern Virginia and in Richmond is simply decreeing uh, in a very Stalinist manner what the rest of the state is going to have to accept. And, of course, the rest of the state is uh, understandably not happy about this.
0: Well, I, I still maintain there's, there's a great opportunity for a civics lesson for anybody who's paying attention as to, you know, what, yeah. what is government rightfully supposed to be doing? In its legitimate role, uh, what should it be doing? And dictating everything based on, well, we got 50% plus one, so therefore whatever you want uh, is irrelevant, is not a proper function of government.
1: No, and it's also extraordinarily disingenuous. You hear a lot about assault weapons and these scary military-looking rifles, but how many 7-Elevens are held up with AR-15s? Right. Um, right. You know, there's just there's not a lot of crime that's involved using so-called uh, assault rifles or or most gun crime is is involving a handgun but they've got this fixation on rifles and i think that's interesting because uh why would they want to take away the rifles well the obvious answer is that a, a rifle is useful for <laughs> defending against tyrannical government and that's really what this is all about
0: although if you heard joe biden you know in the last week well you know you got an f-15 firing uh, you know hellfire missiles your ak-47 yep. isn't going to do you any good And I know several people have pointed out, look, Joe, make up your mind. Is it too dangerous for people to own or is it so useless that it really doesn't matter? Come on. Which one is it?
1: Well, uh, my answer to that is uh, Afghanistan. Uh, How long have we been there now? What? uh, Let me do the math. What, 17 years? And in, in 17 years, this colossal superpower with how many aircraft carriers and how many uh, F-15s, F-18s, and what have you, haven't been able to subdue a bunch of goat herds armed with AK-47s.
0: A good point. Well, as well, as always... What happened in Afghanistan
1: back in the 80s when the Russians were in Afghanistan, the same thing. The, you know, these goat herds, these tribesmen, who really didn't have a whole lot more than AKs, were able to hold off the, the combined massive weight uh, and, 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 and power of the entire Soviet Union. So, so much for that argument.
0: Well, I appreciate you bringing us up to speed on this. Um, I, I'm sure you've heard people say it, but I want to add my voice to those who say, I may not be there physically, but uh, spiritually and, and my heart is yeah. there with you. And, uh, you know, you, we, we, will, we will not let you stand alone if push comes to shove. Well,
1: really appreciate that, Brian. And thanks also to everybody listening to that, who shares the, listening to the program, who shares the sentiments.
0: Let's uh, let's shift gears here for a moment. I want to talk a little bit about uh, something that's on a lot of people's minds. And because I consider you kind of a voice of reason, Eric, tell me your thoughts on the coronavirus. Are you scared to death like, like some people appear well, to w- want us to be? Here's the
1: thing. That is how do we even know everything has been so hystericized every single issue that you can think of is now painted in the most dire uh, and horrific uh, and uh, uh, unimaginably awful terms conceivable you, you go to the weather channel for example and it's it's the apocalypse it's it's a it's a it's a snow whatever you know the terminology everything is is overwrought so I don't know now clearly it's a problem I think something like what is it about thirty thousand people uh, worldwide have been diagnosed with this and I Uh, what is it, about a dozen or more in the United States. I'm not familiar really with the the nature of the the disease itself. I understand it's some kind of a respiratory infection, and, and it can kill you. But I don't think it's it's something to be freaking out about just yet. Uh, who knows? Unfortunately, we don't really have any sound basis for making that determination.
0: Okay, no, fair enough. We, we The information we're getting is coming generally through controlled sources. And there's also the aspect that we know for a fact there are people who love to exploit our fears or our unease <coughs> to, uh, to hurt us in a predictable direction.
1: Right. Well, you know, the media is trying to generate... In order for them to do that, they have to paint things in apocalyptic terms. That's why we have a climate crisis and a climate emergency. You know,
0: right, right. Well, I just, I for one don't want to be stampeded, especially in a direction that uh, separates me further from my uh, remaining freedoms. But uh, I just, uh, I, if 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 it's not something that's causing you deep concern, I'm I'm glad to hear that. Uh, I, I'm I'm not alone because I don't I don't consider you somebody who sticks his head in the sand and that's that's why I, I wanted to get your take on it.
1: Yeah, I try not to. Now, my understanding is that the Chinese economy in China uh, potentially is having some issues just because of the, the steps that the Chinese government is having to take to quarantine and deal with uh, the outbreak over there. I've, uh, I, I've I've gathered that some car production lines, for example, have been idled. Um, this and for this reason and that that could have some repercussions but it's still far too early to tell if anything significant is going to come of this
0: and i'm with you on that i actually i read something this last week and and this was far more alarming than any world health organization press release it was uh, i was actually researching a rifle scope of all things but it was it's a, a rifle scope that is manufactured in china and the distributor here in america was being asked well when are these scopes going to be here and he said well it's it's hard to say because there are there are th- there are factories that are no longer producing anything because of the actions of the Chinese yeah. government. There are things that have been produced yep. that haven't been loaded on the ships. And there are ships that are not allowed to leave port or ships that aren't allowed into port. And he says, yep. that's that's a little bit alarming because that extends across the whole economy. And you're right. This could affect us in ways we may not have anticipated yep. at this point.
1: Yeah. Well, give it a few weeks and we'll know more.
0: OK. OK. Fair enough. We've got to take a quick break. We're talking with Eric Peters from epautos.com. Check the site out for yourself. When we come back, we're going to take a little visit to a recent commentary of his called Because We Said So. Now, every parent has uttered those words, but when it's a government bureaucrat saying it to you, it should rightly chap your hide. We'll talk about why after these messages. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I have Eric Peters from Eric Peters Autos with me today. And Eric, uh, I, I love this commentary that I saw recently published on your website, because we said so. Well, th- mm-hmm. Those are words that every parent has, has spoken probably numerous times in their life, but uh, nowhere do those words become more distasteful than when they're coming from the mouth of a bureaucrat.
1: Of course. you know At least parents have some legitimate authority over minor children, but uh, it's, it's especially obnoxious when we're parented by government, <laughs> uh, particularly when that government is hypocritical, uh, which it often is. And uh, the, the point that I make in my article with, is with regard to uh, the various government safety standards that uh, the government insists all car manufacturers must abide by, with an exception. Uh, they, they just made an exception for self-driving vehicles, So they don't have to pass the same uh, crash-worthiness standards that apply to all the other cars because the government wants to force or encourage uh, people to accept these these self-driving cars, which have already killed people. They're going to to kill more people uh, and are now more likely to hurt people uh, because they don't have to abide by some of the same standards that other cars have to abide by.
0: But we're supposed to just trust the government and say, no, no, this is okay. If they say it's all right for them not to have to conform, then uh, I, I mean, I'm mm-hmm. torn on this, Eric. Help help me uh, help me off the ledge here. On the one hand, I want the uh, regulatory apparatus to lighten up on car manufacturers. Yeah. Uh, you, you've made the case very well that uh, the expense that goes into the cars, the safety features that we don't even want mm-hmm. um, are, are kind of a negative. But uh, at the same time, you know, when, when they exempt certain ones, it seems like they're, they're not uh, they're not playing fair.
1: Well, what they're doing is playing hypocritical, and it makes, I think, a very persuasive point that the object of all of this is not our safety. If it were our safety, as they say, then wouldn't they be consistent? And wouldn't our safety be uh, the rule by which they, they measure all vehicles? Uh, instead, we have a case where our safety doesn't seem to matter that much when it comes to these self-driving cars. In this case, because they they say, well, these little automated driving cars in this case, uh, only go up to 25 miles an hour. Well, that's wonderful. You walk across the street and get hit by a vehicle going 25 miles an hour. Uh, you can write a letter to the government from your hospital bed if you're still alive uh, and, and, and explain to them that getting hit by a vehicle going 25 miles an hour is not very safe.
0: Wow, I mean, that's, that's why they say that's an acceptable risk.
1: Yeah, that's huh? why they say it's okay. And of course, the other example, Uh, you and I have talked about this several times in the past. You've got Teslas out there with full self-driving capability. So they encourage the driver to just nod off, literally, go to sleep behind the wheel, let the car drive. And there have been a number of instances of these cars piling into other cars, piling into abutments, killing people. We know this for a fact. It's not debatable. So these cars are not safe. But that's okay. That's all right. We can have that Uh, because, again, it's a favored class, a favored category. The government seems very ardent about promoting both electric cars and self-driving cars. So they're making an exemption, even if it comes at the price of our safety.
0: Well, I guess a few, you know, however many lives have to be sacrificed in order to make this happen is a small pittance to pay, blah, blah, blah. No, it's, it's, it's the, the state trying to substitute mm-hmm. its wisdom for ours, its choices for ours. And I guess our, our duty is to what? Shut up and go along with it?
1: Well, yeah, exactly. That, that's the way they view it, is that our, uh, you know, we, we should simply bow our heads and accept their cost-benefit analysis. And that's really the fundamental moral issue here. I think that you and I and every other person has the moral right to weigh risk for ourselves and to uh, accept both the benefits and the risks that attend that risk uh, or attend that particular thing. Whereas the government and these bureaucrats, and that's all they are, you know, we, we talk about the government like it's some kind of God, and it's just other people. And somehow these other people think that they know better than we do uh, what's in our own best interest, and they arrogantly Uh, supersede our own decision-making abilities and will punish us if we disagree with their decisions. And it's really outrageous, I think.
0: Well, and another example that I know you have have given here is the uh, Takata airbags. Now, I've owned Mm -hmm. two Hondas within the last uh, four or five years. We've sold both of those cars. One was my daughter's, one was mine. Uh, We've gotten rid of those. We still get notices all the time, take it in, get that Takata Mm -hmm. airbag replaced. But in the meantime, as you point out, People who have cars that have this particular uh, dangerous airbag have no option of turning it off.
1: No legal option. Well, they can't go to a dealer and, and ask the dealer to temporarily, not even temporarily, disable this known to be defective, lethally defective device that's been installed in their vehicle uh... that could kill them and this is an established fact it's not some kind of conspiracy theory uh... the government will not permit them to do that and clearly that's another example of something being extraordinarily unsafe but the government doesn't seem to care about that because in fact the uh... the motivation here is not our safety uh... it's about control it's about controlling us that's what this is about so every time you hear that term safety substitute control because that's almost always what it's about
0: no, I'm, I'm with you there. Um, what about, uh, I, I think you mentioned, uh, what would be the reaction if it were discovered that Honda or Toyota or Chevy was selling cars that didn't meet the uh, five-mile-per-hour bumper impact requirement? Sure. What would the Fed say sure, exactly. about that?
1: You know, there would be, there would not only be a massive mandatory recall, there would probably some, be some sort of criminal prosecution of the corporate officers who allowed that to happen, a la the VW thing, sure. uh, over something relatively innocuous. You know, the five-mile-an-hour bumper impact standard, uh, as opposed to uh, a vehicle that can, can cannot have to apply uh, comply with any standards at all, that can run you or your kid or your wife over, so long as it's only going 25 miles an hour.
0: Amazing. Well, as you said, it's it's a great example of the hypocrisy. Um, I don't know. I still I want to believe that uh, that there are still some very uh, great golden years ahead of us as uh, as drivers. And and the technology has made driving much more fun and in some ways easier. But mm-hmm. but uh, the regulatory burden that uh, that comes along with some of the progress, it, it's I don't know, it's reaching the, the point of diminishing returns, I think, for a lot of us.
1: Well, it's reaching a crescendo. I think that this issue is going to resolve itself one way or the other, very much like the gun issue, uh, within the very near future. I don't see this this uh, petering out for more than another two or three years at the outside, and probably sooner, if, if only for practical and economic reasons. We're, we're going to reach a point where a critical mass of the buying population simply cannot afford to buy a new car anymore. Certainly, Uh, If the government essentially forces us to buy nothing but electric cars, the average person cannot buy a forty thousand dollar electric car and then spend a thousand bucks on a charger in their house and all of the other rigmarole that goes with it. So what happens then? You know, it's it's either it's either going to completely collapse or it's going to change completely. That's that's my that's my prediction.
0: Well, and, and I want to, there was one other thing that, that uh, this had brought to mind. I don't know if, if you have any thoughts on this, front license plates for cars. Um, I know mm-hmm. there are many states that require them. We actually have a lawmaker here in my home state of Utah who now wants mm-hmm. to mandate, you must have a front license plate on your car, and uh, yeah. I do not want to drill the bumper on my beloved Mustang, <laughs> you know, to, to put a license plate oh, on yeah. there.
1: Virginia is a state that has the two license plate requirement, and it's almost kind of a mathematical axiom. If a state has the two plate requirement, that state is going to be more oppressive than a state that only has a one plate requirement. And of course, they're doing it to make it easier for uh, automated license plate readers, for example, uh. and photo radar, and 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 uh, uh, right on red, and HOV cameras, and all of that thing to catch us near do wells and scofflaws and send us a piece of paying paper in the mail.
0: Okay. Well, that's, uh, yeah, it's uh, what I see when I see that requirement or that that proposed requirement here in Utah is that someone's trying to create another reason for the man to interject himself into my life. Not something that I actually support
1: and mutilate your car, too. I'm completely with you. It's, it's horrific to have to take a good-looking car that hasn't got a provision for the stupid license plate from the factory, my Trans Am's like that, uh, and then have to drill holes in the bumper to comply with the law so that you don't risk getting hut hut hutted by an armed government worker.
0: Is, is the risk strong there in Virginia? I know their traffic enforcement's uh, pretty vigorous, but if you were to take your Trans Am out without a front license plate, is the likelihood very strong you would get stopped?
1: Well, I can get away with it because my car is old enough to qualify for antique vehicle registration. So I, I have the black and white antique tag in the back. Gotcha. And there are different rules for for the antique vehicle. However, your car has to be 25 years old or older in order to qualify for that. And it's a limited-use tag. You're technically only supposed to drive the car to and from car shows and for testing purposes and so on.
0: Okay. i got to jump in here and say we are up against the clock. Eric, thank you so much for being my guest today. Hope to talk to you you again next week. Sounds great, Brian. Thank you. All right, welcome back to Loving Liberty. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Again, I encourage you to find some time to visit my friend Eric Peters' website. It's ericpetersautos.com. You can also go epautos.com. Such a wealth of information, anything automotive. And I know there are a lot of guys out there who really love the automotive stuff. Um, I think you'll find Eric is a kindred spirit. If you are someone for whom, let's say, freedom is a favorable thing, you'll also find some great food for thought. And be sure to check out his sponsors, maybe patronize them. Uh, make sure that they know that uh, his message is being heard and it's uh, translating into, you know, bringing customers to them. All right. A couple of different articles here as we move into the uh, next segment. By the way, hold your calls for next hour. We'll have a chance to, uh, to chat about a couple of things in the one o'clock hour. Um, looking around. I don't know if you feel the sense of concern or the sense of uh, apprehension that uh, I sometimes do, but the, the the division that I see around us right now, um, I won't say it's alarming, okay? It's not like I stay curled up in a ball sucking my thumb and just, you know, wishing it would go away, but, but I get a hitch in my stomach. There's times where I'm like, oh, this is not getting better. This is, this is intensifying, and, and I have to wonder, how far is it going to go? And sometimes it's good to get a little shot of perspective, and I got to give props to Pat Buchanan for providing some perspective, because look, the, the narrative right now, at least from much of the media and from those who are uh, opponents of President Trump, is that uh, this division is the result of President Trump. He's the one who started all this. Well, Pat Buchanan says, no, we were a divided people long before Trump. And I want you to, to hear how he backs that up. He says, in a way, Donald Trump might be called the great uniter. Now, he says, bear with me. No Republican president in the lifetime of this writer, not even Ronald Reagan, united the party, as did Trump, in the week of his acquittal in the Senate and State of the Union address. According to the Gallup poll, 94 percent of Republicans approve of his handling of the presidency in his fourth year. That's despite the worst press any president has ever received and the sustained hostility of our cultural elites. Only Bush one in the first months of the 1991 Gulf War and Bush two in the first months of the 2003 Iraq War registered support like this. And only one Republican, Senator Mitt Romney, and only after having consulted God himself, joined Speaker Nancy Pelosi and voted with Senator Chuck Schumer's caucus to bring down the president. So Pat Buchanan asks, when have Republicans ever exhibited the home team enthusiasm they demonstrated during the State of the Union address and the post-acquittal gathering in the East Room? When have working and middle-class voters shown such support for a Republican as they do for Trump at his mammoth rallies? Heading for November, he says this is a party united. But it's not only, he says, not only is Trump the great uniter of the GOP, he is the great uniter of Democrats, Every Democrat but three in the House voted to impeach and remove him. Every Democrat in the Senate voted to convict and expel him from office and prevent his ever running again. Now, in Iowa and New Hampshire, evicting Trump from the Oval Office seemed the one issue that animated every candidate. Getting Trump out of the White House seems far more important to Democrats than getting U.S. troops out of the endless Middle East wars. But Pat Buchanan says, while he has made more than a small contribution to our savage partisanship, is Trump really the cause of the uncivil war in America? Or, he asks, is his presidency, like Gettysburg, simply the battlefield upon which America's cultural and political war is currently engaged? See, I think that's a fair question, and I think that's actually a, a good way of looking at it. Pat Buchanis is says, consider Bernie Sanders' nationalization of health care and abolition of private health insurance for 150 million Americans is grounded in a socialism that has never been reconcilable with Trump's belief in the superiority of the private sector. A belief reflected in Trump's tax cuts for corporations and individuals and his deregulation policies. Democrats' unanimous support for, quote, reproductive rights is an eternal conflict with the traditionalist belief in a God-given right to life as well as with Trump's pledge to nominate justices who will overturn Roe v. Wade. Still, he says the battles between the Supreme court nominations of Robert Bork and Clarence Thomas predated by decades, the battle over Brett Kavanaugh. Now Pat Buchanan says immigration may determine the destiny of the West. Yet, he says Democrats believe in tearing down Trump's wall, an end to deportations, extending welfare benefits to border crossers and granting sanctuary from border security agents for criminals here illegally. That Americans of European descent at 90 percent of the nation in 1960, now close to 60 percent today, will in 20 years be less than half of the population is for Democrats a cause of ceaseless celebration. America, they contend, will be a far, far better place than we have ever known when a far smaller share of the population is white. The greater racial, creedal, cultural, and ethnic diversity, the better the country. Yet Americans of European descent, headed for minority status, provide 85 to 90 percent of all Republican votes in presidential elections. What Democrats are cheering portends the demographic demographic death rather of the GOP. Now, he says Republicans are a more nationalistic and populist party than they were in the Bush presidencies. But the Democratic Party has become a politically correct institution where Joe Biden is forced to explain stands that he took when he was a moderate Democrat senator from Delaware. His opposition to the forced busing of children from neighborhood schools into inner city schools was attacked as racist. He's had to apologize for his friendship with Southern senators like Jim Eastland and his role in the Clarence Thomas hearings. He has been made to confess for voting to authorize the 2003 war on Iraq. Now, Biden is far to the left of where he used to be as a senator, but apparently he's not moved far enough. Even James Carville is castigating his own party's candidates for talking about reparations or any other kind of goofy left-wing thing out there. It's like we're losing our damn minds, says Carville. And Pat Buchanan asks, is Trump responsible for what Carville himself Seizes an irrationality and irresponsibility, taking on epidemic proportions inside the Democratic Party? Or, he asks, has Trump's success maddened Democrats into manifesting who they are and what they believe, and what may yet prevent them from being taken seriously as a party that can lead the nation? He concludes by saying, we were divided long before Trump got here, and will remain so long after he departs. Interesting. I don't disagree with his with his take on, you know, is is Trump the reason for our division? I don't think so. But I've been saying for quite some time, you know, the the angst and the anger and the opposition that that seems to be stirred up around Donald Trump is uh, is in response to him being a symptom. I think people who see him as the cause of all of our ills either have very, very short memories or they they lack uh, broad enough perspective to recognize that many of the things that they're they're upset about have been going on for a long time. Trump is just the current figurehead, and so I guess he's the convenient target for them. And the way that uh, I I would illustrate this is, you know, ask him, what would change? If you could remove him from office today, you know, alien beings come by in a flying saucer and beam him up and take him to their planet, you know, for a further examination. So Trump is out of the picture. What actually changes? I feel pretty safe in saying that, uh, you know, they, they would not look at America as, you know, a healed nation, a nation where people get along, where there is no racial tension and whatnot. They would still be singing that same one note symphony of, you know, America is a manifestation of the worst things of humankind. Now, I don't believe that for a minute. And I would encourage you don't just buy into that because someone says you have to, and you should feel guilty if you don't. If anything, the, uh, the anger that I see expressed towards Donald Trump is anger that he refuses to capitulate to the demands and to the tantrums being thrown by his political opponents. And it's not just the Democrats, by the way, there are Republicans who likewise have you know, thrown fits that, that he won't go along with this. Isn't it interesting though, the one thing that both sides seem to unite on, you saw this in the state of the union address. And to me, this is a really disturbing thing. The place where they all set aside their differences and they actually stood and applauded was when Trump was recognizing those who had to put on the nation's uniform and fought in our nation's various military actions around the world. So in other words, they, they support the massive warfare state and interventionism, uh, you know, and and that's, that's when they started regarding Trump as presidential, right? The first time he carried out an airstrike on, uh, was it on uh, Syria? Because of an alleged gas attack by uh, Bashar al-Assad against his people. I say alleged because I don't think it was ever shown that he was the one who pulled that off. But as soon as those bombs fell, how many people, Republican and Democrat alike, started uh, making noises? Well, now, now the president is starting to actually act presidential. So apparently, that's the Litmus Test, and unfortunately, that's a pretty good indicator of where we are going astray. It's it's not just Donald Trump. It's it's the whole rotten system. It's the system that recognizes no meaningful limits to the power that it has been entrusted with, and that to, treats us the people from whom it derives its legitimate power as either criminals that haven't been caught yet or cattle or some other commodity that has to be managed and herded about. You're not a sheep. I'm not a sheep. And frankly, every one of us should be more than just a little bit insulted that uh, people who are essentially employees. That's what a politician is. You elect somebody. You didn't elect them to be your ruler. They're your employee, but they're treating us as if we were their servants. Somehow they've got their wires crossed. I'm not sure how we go about correcting that, but I think the first thing is we we have to consider withdrawing that consent that they seem to think they have at this point. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Please hold your calls. In the next hour, we'll open up the phones. We do have a lot to discuss. So, in the last segment, as I was talking about Pat Buchanan's observation that look, we were a divided people long before Trump. Um, I, I ended the segment with a with a question about. So, what do we do about it? What are our options? And I'm gonna I'm gonna broach a topic here that is gonna make some people a little bit nervous, but I think this is uh, this is a word and it's a concept that uh, we ought to be getting our minds around, and that is the word secession. Now, if you immediately think, "Oh, wait a minute! Didn't we fight a war over this already?" Um, I want you to hear out what Jeff Deist had to say. This is from a talk he presented at the Houston Mises Circle back in 2015, but. You need to understand that secession doesn't necessarily have to be a political movement. In other words, you and I have the power to secede from institutions, organizations, and even people who are toxic and otherwise harmful to our lives. Listen to what he has to say. He says, presumably everyone in this room that he was speaking to or virtually everyone is here today because you have some interest in the topic of secession. You might be interested in it as an abstract, interested in it rather as an abstract concept or as a viable possibility for escaping a federal government that Americans now fear and distrust in unprecedented numbers. As von Mises wrote in 1927, the situation of having to belong to a state to which one does not wish to belong to is no less onerous. If it is the result of an election, then if one must endure it as the consequence of a military conquest. Wow. Now, he says, I'm sure that this sentiment is shared by many of you. Mises understood that mass democracy was no substitute for liberal society, but rather the enemy of it. And of course, he was right. Nearly a 100 years later, we've been conquered and occupied by the state and its phony veneer of democratic elections. The federal government is now the putative ruler of nearly every aspect of life in America. And he says, that's why we're here today entertaining the audacious idea of secession, an idea that Mises elevated to a defining principle of classical liberalism. It's tempting and entirely human to close our eyes tight and resist radical change, to live in America's past. But he says, to borrow a line from novelist L.P. Hartley, the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. The America we thought we knew is a mirage, a memory, a foreign country. And that, ladies and gentlemen, he says, is precisely why we should take secession seriously, both conceptually as consistent with libertarianism and as a real alternative for the future. He asks, does anyone really believe that a physically vast multicultural social democratic welfare state of 330 million people with hugely diverse economic, social and cultural interests can be commanded from D.C. indefinitely without intense conflict and economic strife? Does anyone really believe that we can unite under a state that endlessly divides us? Rich versus poor, black versus white, Hispanic versus Anglo, men versus women, old versus young, secularists versus Christians, gays versus traditionalists, taxpayers versus entitlement recipients, urban versus rural, red state versus blue state, and the political class versus everybody. Frankly, it seems clear the federal government is hell-bent on balkanizing America anyway. So why not seek out ways to split apart rationally And nonviolently, why dismiss secession, the pragmatic alternative that's staring us in the face? Since most of us in the room are Americans, he says, my focus today is on the political and cultural situation here at home. But the same principles of self-ownership, self-determination and decentralization apply universally, whether we're considering considering Texas independence or dozens of active breakaway movements in places like Venice, Catalonia, Scotland and Belgium. Jeff Deist says, I truly believe secession moments represent the last best hope for reclaiming our birthright, the great classical liberal tradition and the civilization it made possible. In a world gotten mad with state power, secession offers hope that truly liberal societies organized around civil society and markets rather than central governments can still exist. But how could this ever really happen? You're probably thinking. Wouldn't creating a viable secession movement in the U.S. necessarily mean convincing a majority of Americans, or at least a majority of the electorate, to join a mass political campaign, much like a presidential election? Jeff Deist says no. Building a libertarian secession movement need not involve mass political organizing. In fact, national political movements that pander to the left and right may well be hopelessly naive and a waste and wasteful of time and resources. Instead, he says, our focus should be on hyper localized resistance to the federal government in the form of a bottom up revolution, as Hans Hermann Hoppe puts it. Hoppe counsels us to use what little daylight the state affords us defensively. Just as force is justified only in self-defense, the use of democratic means is justified only when used to achieve non-democratic, libertarian, pro-private property ends. In other words, a bottom-up revolution employs both persuasion and democratic mechanisms to succeed, to secede, rather, at the individual, family, community, and local level in a million ways that involve turning our backs on the central government rather than attempting to bend its will. Secession, properly understood, means withdrawing consent and walking away from D.C., not trying to capture it politically and converting the king. So why is the road to secession not political, at least not at the national level? Well, he says, frankly, any notion of a libertarian takeover of the political apparatus in D.C. is fantasy. And even if a political sea change did occur, the army of 4.3 million federal employees is not going to simply disappear. Convincing Americans to adopt a libertarian political system, even if such an oxymoron were possible, is a hopeless endeavor in our current culture. Politics is a trailing indicator. Culture leads. Politics follows. There cannot be a political sea change in America unless and until there is a philosophical, educational and cultural sea change. Over the last 100 years, progressives have overtaken education, media, fine arts, literature, and pop culture. And thus, as a result, they've overtaken politics, not the other way around. And he says, this is why our movement, the libertarian movement, must be a battle for hearts and minds. It must be an intellectual revolution of ideas. Because right now, bad ideas run the world. We can't expect a libertarian political miracle to occur in an ill-libertarian society. Now, he says, please don't get me wrong. The philosophy of liberty is growing around the world. And he says, I believe we are winning hearts and minds. This is a time for boldness, not pessimism. Yet libertarianism will never be a mass, which is to say a majority political movement. Some people will always support the state. And we shouldn't kid ourselves about this. It may be due to genetic traits, environmental factors, family influences, bad schools, media influences, or simply an innate human desire to seek the illusion of security. he says, we make a fatal mistake when we dilute our message to seek approval from people who seemingly are hardwired to oppose us and we waste precious time and energy. What's important is not convincing those who fundamentally disagree with us, but the degree to which we can extract ourselves from their political control. This is why secession is a tactically superior approach in his view. It's a far less it's far less daunting to convince liberty minded people to walk away from the state than to convince those with a statist mindset. To change. Now he says, "I know what you're thinking, and so does the aforementioned Doctor Hop, Hoppy. Rather, wouldn't the federali simply crush any attempt at localized secession? Well, they would surely like to, but whether or not they can actually do so is an entirely different question. It's only necessary to recognize that the members of the governmental apparatus always represent, even under conditions of democracy, a very small portion of the total population." Hoppy envisions a growing number of implicitly seceded territories engaging in non-compliance with federal authority. Without local enforcement by compliant local authorities, the will of the central government is not much more than hot air. It would be prudent to avoid a direct confrontation with the central government and not openly denounce its authority. Rather, it seems advisable to engage in a policy of passive resistance and non-cooperation. One simply stops to help in the enforcement in each and every federal law. And finally, he concludes, as only Hoppy could, and remember, this was written in the 1990s, Waco, a teeny group of freaks is one thing, but to occupy or to wipe out a significantly large group of normal, accomplished, upstanding citizens is quite another and quite a more difficult thing. Now, there's much more to this article, but I want to cut right to the chase. Secession begins with you. Ultimately, says Jeff Deist, the wisdom of secession starts and ends with the individual bad ideas run the world, but must they run your world? The question we all have to ask ourselves is how seriously do we take the right of self-determination and what are we willing to do in our personal lives to assert it? And he gives some options of, you know, these are some things you can do to secede right now. He says, secede from intellectual isolation, talk to like-minded friends, family and neighbors, whether physically or virtually, to spread liberty and cultivate relationships and alliances. The state prefers to have us atomized without a strong family structure or social network. He says, secede from dependency, become self-sufficient as possible with regard to food, water, fuel, cash, firearms and physical security at home. Resist being reliant on government in the event of a natural disaster, bank crisis, or the like. Secede from state control of your children by homeschooling or unschooling them. Secede from the mainstream media which promotes the state in a million different ways. Ditch cable, ditch CNN, ditch the major newspapers. Find your own sources of information in this internet age. There's much more here, but it starts with seceding from the mindset that government is all-powerful or too formidable an opponent to overcome. You and I know better because it depends on our consent. And if it's not working for us in protecting our God-given rights, we have the right to withdraw that consent as we see fit. Hour two, just around the corner. Stay with us.